There is very little more synonymous with the season that we are currently in than the songs, right? There's very little more synonymous with Christmas than the songs that we sing, the songs that we listen to, the songs that make us think of this time of year. And the question is not, do you like Christmas songs, right? The question, or more pertinent question in my, in my mind is, how early do you get on board with the Christmas songs, right? So are you, first of all, one of those go early people, right? The go early to get you in the mood Christmas song people, one of those people that's like, Halloween's over, the Christmas songs are going on, the stereo buble is on, you're even thinking about putting the tree up. I'm not asking for a show of hands, by the way, because you're the worst kind of people. Not true. Jillian's one of those people. The person in the Christmas jumper is the worst kind of... Anyway, are you a go-early person? Or are you that person that is like, well, I'm going to hold off, you know, I want to get in the mood just right as we're coming up to Christmas, so I'm going to hold off for like Christmas tree day, or maybe even as late as like Christmas Eve to get you in the mood for the Christmas season. That was like my house growing up. Christmas songs went on on the Christmas tree day, right? That was how it kind of happened in our house, uh, and that was kind of how it always worked. It got you in the mood for Christmas. Where do you stand? Maybe by now you're just completely fed up with them. I bumped into my little sister during the week. She works in a retail shop in Belfast City Centre, and she's like, we have had a Christmas playlist on since the 1st of November. When I went in, there was like Bieber or something on the stairs. She was like, I can't do it anymore. I can't do it. I'm like, Hannah, everyone's going to hate your shop because you're not even playing Christmas music. No, they're going to, like, that's the worst. But she was over it. She's just over it. She's listened out. Christmas songs. When we think about the season that we're in, right, we're pretty quick to think about the songs, aren't we? They're great, right? Except when you think about it for a moment, they're not that great, okay? I mean, take the greatest of them all, right? The fairy tale of New York. I realize I'm like, I'm stepping on some major like feelings here, right? But think about it for a second, right? And the now controversial lyric in the middle of that song. So controversial that in fact the BBC in 2019 changed the lyrics to air it on TV, changed to the line, you're cheap and you're haggard. I'm not going to tell you the original line because this is a family show and we're streaming online, okay, right? So they changed it to cheap and you're haggard. Or Baby, It's Cold Outside, made famous by Dean Martin. I mean, Dean, it really sounds like she's just not that into you, right? It sounds like you're seriously trying to spike her drink too. I mean, it's not okay. There's actually a line in it that says, ah, you're very pushy, you know. And he says, I like to think of it as opportunistic. And that's not okay, Dean. It's 2021. It's not okay. Or Band-Aid, do they know it's Christmas? That line tonight, thank God it's them instead of you. I mean, at very best, it's insensitive. At worst, it's massively offensive. Wizard, I wish it could be Christmas every day. I mean, that's just an awful idea. As a parent of two small kids, it is an awful idea, Wizard, do one. That's not happening. Mariah, all I want for Christmas is you. I mean, if any of you watched the Mariah Carey Christmas special last year, she is the most bougie person on the face of the earth. There's no chance that all she wants is you, right? There's literally no chance that that is the case. And even some of our songs, Away in a Manger, The Little Lord Jesus, No Crying He Makes. Now, I have two small kids and neither of them have ever not cried, right? It's not true. 
We love Christmas songs, don't we? We love them. And yet right at the heart of the story, the great story, the Christmas story, in Luke's gospel, as we've been making our way through over the last couple of weeks, is a song that we don't talk that much about. Right in the middle of this great story is one of the great Christmas songs. And we don't talk about it that much. And it's the one that Grace and Izzy um, were reading for us today, the one that was in our passage, the one that we find in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 56. It's called Mary's Magnificat. I mean, Mary is obviously one of the key players in the Christmas story, right? No Mary, no baby, right? I mean, that's kind of how this thing works. She's Mary, the mother of Jesus, as the Bible says again and again. And Luke's gospel has carried the story right from the angel's appearance to her. To her visit to Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. And now this, her song before Jesus is born in Luke chapter 2. This song is the longest set of words spoken by a woman in the entirety of the New Testament. It's the longest set of words spoken by a woman in the entirety of the New Testament. I mean, that's just one reason to think that it's significant, right? It's one of the Christmas songs. So what is it speaking to us today, right here in 2021, in the Christmas season that we're in right now? Well, I think that it is saying two things to us today. It's talking about vulnerability, and it's a song about courage. It's a song about vulnerability and a song about courage. The first of those things is vulnerability. And I wonder if I asked you today, what makes you feel vulnerable? What would you say? I mean, all of us feel vulnerable at some point in their life, right? But what makes you feel vulnerable? One of the repeat things people often say whenever you talk about vulnerability is, oh, that dream where you wake up naked in the middle of town, right? I don't know if it's like an original sin kind of thing, you know, naked and ashamed. I don't know what it is, but it's like if you say that, they're like, oh, I had that dream. It's the worst dream ever, right? But for everyone, what makes them feel vulnerable is different. When Joy and I got married, uh, you know, sort of paralleling into a Christmas type story. When we got married, we were going to do one of our first Christmases. And we did that thing where we basically just said the first year, right, we'll, just, we'll just roll the dice and then it's like 50-50. We'll go to your house one year and my house the next year and we'll just do it that way. So it's totally fair. So one of our first Christmases, we go to Joy's mom and dad's for Christmas. And one of the things, as Helen alluded to earlier on, right, is how everyone's Christmas traditions are very different, right? Some of you, this is your first Christmas as a married couple, and you're already kind of part dreading what you're going to have to give up and what you're going to have to do as part of the Christmas festivities, right? And different families do things very differently. How they eat, when they eat, what they eat, the way the stuffing is made, Uh, Christmas traditions like the way they open presents and all of that sort of stuff. And I was prepared for that, right? I I was kind of, I was over the fact that like, this is going to be different for me. I'm with her family. They're going to do things differently. I'm getting over myself, right? The one thing I was not prepared for was the cards, right? Because I'm not a words of affirmation person, right? As far as I'm concerned, the card is just like, you know, it's, it's just, I don't know. It's just like the starter to the present, which is the main course. I'm just like, get over it, right? Card, oh, that's nice. Throw it away. Rip the present open immediately, right? I don't really care about cards because I'm not a words of affirmation person, right? But Joy's family are. So every card you ever get has got like an essay in it, right? 
And so, you know, I would get these cards for like birthdays and stuff. And I'm like, goodness me, that is a lot of words just to write about, you know, you on your birthday. I mean, I, I always joke with Joe, I would write like, you know, happy birthday, regards, Dave. You know, I just wouldn't write anything else on it. But so I'm like watching the way they're doing these things. And I'm thinking, well, I, like I need to step up, right? I'm, I'm going into this culture. So, you know, I need, to, I need to do what they do. So I get Joy a Christmas card. And I write loads of nice things about her in the Christmas card, right? So we're sitting in the front room. And I, Joy, I hand her. She eventually gets to my present. Joy being Joy, she opens the card first because the card is the main event, right? And she takes her time and she reads all of the nice things that I have written about her. And I'm like sat on the other side of the room and I've like nailed it, right? I've nailed it. The gift is relevant. I've nailed it with the card. I'm feeling pretty good about myself. Joy looks up and she goes, thank you. I love you. And I'm like, yes, I have crushed it. And then she hands it to somebody else in her family. And then they pass it round and they read the card. And I'm like dying inside. Like, this is not okay. This wasn't part of the contract. The contract was I would write lots of nice things about you and you would never show it to anybody else. But they all pass it around and they all read it. And some part of me is feeling deeply, deeply vulnerable. And we all know times in our life where we'll feel vulnerable, don't we? Where we'll feel exposed. We will feel that all the spotlight all of a sudden is on you and it's unwelcome. Where you'll know that feeling inside of like, you know, you just kind of cave in a little bit on yourself. But yet I doubt that many of us will ever know the profound vulnerability that Mary was living in as we read from Luke's account today. I doubt that any, any of us will ever know vulnerability like that. This was, after all, a girl around 14 years old, pregnant, with a baby outside of marriage. Now, lots has changed from those times to these times, but I'm fairly sure that they understood the mechanics of getting pregnant as well then as we do now. So I'm fairly sure that the God has done this narrative wouldn't have washed that well with many people in that time or about as well then as it would with us now. Like, would anyone have believed her when she said that? Probably not. She's not from high status, neither her nor Joseph Ware. In verse 48, she'll talk about herself as the humble state of this servant. So she's 14. She's pregnant outside of marriage. Nobody probably believes why she's pregnant. She's not from high status. She's from lowly status. And she was the only one who truly knew what had happened and what astonishing thing the Lord had done. And here's the thing. She definitely did not expect to be in this position. There's no way she did. I'm not sure anyone would choose to be in the position that she was in in these moments. Is it possible that in her head or in her heart, some part of her didn't even want to be where she was? I'm sure there was. After all, her life had been turned upside down. One theologian writes of girls in her position like this, such a girl always wants to remain in hiding. They never rejoice. She was vulnerable. She was as vulnerable as it's possible to be. And yet we're reminded that even though Zachariah, the temple priest, he didn't believe that the Lord was going to do what he said he was going to do when the angel appeared to him. And yet Mary, this 14-year-old girl, the one whose life 
was about to be turned upside down by the things God said he was going to do, she did. She said yes. Where Zachariah had said, really? Mary, really simply, could just say yes. And this was all about faithfulness, right? There's a whole faithfulness narrative going on in this because virginity in that culture was the mark of a woman's faithfulness to her husband-to-be. It was the mark of faithfulness. And clearly, as she carried Jesus in her womb, she would have been thought unfaithful by everyone around her. But she knew of her faithfulness to what the Lord was doing, even if no one else would. And so she starts her song, and the song is what we read in those verses, 46 to 56, right? And she starts the song by singing of her Lord, all right? That's in the first line. And Luke records it as Lord because he was writing to a Greek audience, okay? And to them, they weren't thinking about a Messiah, which is such a prevalent term through all of the gospel accounts of Jesus' birth. They weren't thinking about a Messiah. They didn't really know anything of that. That was a Jewish term in lots of ways. What they knew was Lord. One of the uh, kind of key cultural phrases of their time was Caesar is Lord. And it was the mark of everyday allegiance to a king who thought himself divine. And right here, Mary starts with God in that place. Hi. How could she start a song this way? How could somebody that is that vulnerable, how could somebody whose life has been turned that much upside down start a song like that? Well, you see, even in greatest vulnerability, it was her overriding sense of joy at serving and playing her unique part that was most important, not the rest to her reputation. This was faithfulness over reputation. This was costly faithfulness, radical faithfulness. And the thing is that that's so often not how we respond when we feel vulnerable, is it? Mary's reputation was on the line where she thought her life was going, her plans, right? She was going to be married, all of that stuff, her plans, her dreams, they'd just been shifted like that. And when that happens to us, how do we feel? Our first response is very often not Faithfulness, is it? I mean, just think about how the disruption to our lives in the last couple of years has affected us, right? How have you felt along the way? Angry? Almost certainly. Disillusioned? Very probably. Lost? Maybe. But not merry. We usually feel fear or embarrassment or anger or we put up walls or it's the kind of thing that makes us want to just walk away. But Mary, this is what it says in verse 48. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. The very thing that would have been questioned, her name, her reputation, is the very thing that she believes one day will see her called blessed. And the very thing that has made her vulnerable, she calls great. This is incredible response in her moment of greatest vulnerability. Mary's song is the testimony of someone who knows in the most profound way as she feels her baby kick and move that God is not bound to do as the world 
does. He's not bound to be the way our way, our world works. And the testimony of taking God at his word and living not out of the fear or the shame or the anger of our vulnerability, but the amazement of what God might be doing right in the middle of it. Every kick was a reminder. A reminder that even the lowliest get lifted up. This is a song first about vulnerability and incredible faithfulness right through it. But secondly, it's a song about courage. It's about vulnerability and it's about courage. Let's just read the second half of Mary's song. This is what it says. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He's helped his servant Israel, remembering to be faithful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. The Christmas songs and nativity scenes that we get so used to seeing year on year on year, they, they make us picture Mary the mother mild, don't they? Like that's one of the recurring kind of things from the imagery that we see around this time. Mary was that mother mild, right? We sing it in one of the carols. It's peace and quiet, meekness, kindness, all of that sort of thing. But the truth is, for most of the time, most of us have liked it that way, don't we? We kind of like the quiet kind of reserved, easygoing Mary, don't we? That's the version of Mary that we picture. That's the one that we like. But here's the thing. Mary was way, way, way more. These are not mild words, are they? These are not meek words. These are not floating off into the background words. These are not of little significance or of little power. These are incredible words. At a time when the voice of women was culturally pushed down low, Mary speaks up, Mary sings up. This is a protest song. It's a protest song. In the modern world, we've known the leadership of women in key times of cultural shift, haven't we? For example, Rosa Parks and the many women who were key in the civil rights movement in the 50s still have been in the Black Lives Matter movement of recent days. When I think about the suffragettes or more recently the Me Too movement, right? But the thing is, we don't think of Mary of all people like that, do we? We kind of like the little version of Mary kind of holding the baby tightly with sheep kind of cooing. Sheep can't coo, but anyway, next to her, right? You've just learned something new today. Sheep can coo. Anyway, we like that picture, don't we? We like it. And the thing is that post-Reformation, there was even a theological move to make sure that Mary's role was quiet, was reserved, was meek and mild. So much so that this passage has been banned from being read at liturgy in Argentina, India, and Guatemala. We like the meek version, but this is not meek. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian, he wrote in an Advent sermon in 1933 this. The Song of Mary is the oldest Advent hymn. It is at once the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary Advent hymn ever sung. 
This is not the gentle, tender, dreamy Mary whom we sometimes see in paintings. This is the passionate, surrendered, proud, enthusiastic Mary who speaks out here. Then he goes on. The song has none of the sweet, nostalgic, or even playful tones of some of our Christmas carols. It is instead a hard, strong, inexorable song about collapsing thrones and humbled lords of this world about the power of God and the powerlessness of humankind. That's what this song is. And if we had to put a parallel on Mary, right, and you're not going to like this, it's Greta Thunberg, right? If I had to think about somebody that kind of plays that role, it's Greta Thunberg. Similar age, similar strength of message, right? This is her blah, 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 or whatever it is she says, right? And what is it about Greta that gets under the skin, particularly of meal in the establishment? Like, what is it about her? Because this song is exactly the same. And I love, I love it. It's such an incredible song. It's incredible. And these words in verses 50 to 55 are the words of profound courage. These are words that the oppressed of this world have always gathered around and have always felt seen and heard by and known. These are the sorts of words that people like that are longing for. And I love that Mary sings it while Elizabeth is right there, right? That's like a little sub part of the text, you know? Mary bursts into song and Elizabeth is still like kind of standing right there in the background. I don't know about you, but if like asked just to start singing while your friend is in the room, you're kind of like, like it's sort of an embarrassing thing, isn't it? You're not going to be like bursting into full flow, but Mary does. Most of us would feel embarrassed. But Mary sings as though she's all alone, like it's just her and Jesus. Fear would have said, be quiet. Unbelief would have said, hold on a moment, just, just, just wait, just chill. But faith, it couldn't wait to be silent. It couldn't be silent. And we know those feelings in our life, don't we? When we feel like those moments when God is working in us, he's moving in our lives, he's calling us to do something or to be someone, to change in some way. He's moving us forward in our walk with him. And then we get this moment of vulnerability. And for whatever reason, we know it takes courage to move forward, but we hear the voice telling us just to quieten down, just to sit on it, just to dull it down a bit, to be reasonable, to take your time, to wait, and eventually to not bother. And yet, this is what Mary sings about. He's helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. What's that about? See, Mary is laying the foundations for what God is going to do in the future by remembering what God did in the past. What she's doing is she's laying the foundations for what she believes God is doing right there in her. And what he's going to do in the future through the son that she is carrying by remembering what he has already done in the past. She's saying, this is the God who did all of this, all of those years ago. This is who will shape our story to come. Because that's what God does, isn't it? The Bible really, when we think about it, is a series of stories knitted together of God's moving towards us. 
is continual moving towards us. The mission of God, by the way, we are not the ones who are first called to mission. God, God, it is God's mission that we are called to participate in, right? And the story of God is his continued stepping towards us, that God's being involved in the lives of men and women, that God's involvement in the messy and the unlikely and in Mary, the very lowliest. And so you have to ask yourself today, that if Mary could do, that if God could do this in Mary's life, why not yours? If God could do this in Mary's life, why not yours? Why not yours? Why not the details of your life, the stuff that you think he's forgotten about, the things you prayed about, the stuff you put on the altar and you say, God, I need you to show up. I need you to do something in this, the stuff that you think you've left behind. Why not the things that you're struggling with and you're wrestling through? Why not worries and pain and doubt and longing and fear and worry and on and on and on and on and on? You see, Mary's song is the testimony to God getting involved in her life. So why not yours? We live in a world that commodifies people, don't we? It commodifies people. From the people who mine the materials required for the batteries in all of our electric cars of the future, to those who mine the indium for your iPhone screens, to the laborers making fast fashion, right to the zero hours contracted workers right here in our city center and those who prop up an open 24 hours world. And Mary's song is good news to them. Mary's song is good news to them. And good news to everyone who may be the lowliest and those who feel like a commodity. It's why it might not sound that good to those of us who live as the consumer. Mary's song is incredible news to those who feel consumed. But to those of us, and let's be honest, it's most of us who are the consumer, it might not feel like that much good news. So we blunt her words so easily in the warm Christmas lights. But right here, in the present tense, as she says, he has performed. He has brought down. He has filled the hungry. He has helped. What's Mary doing? Mary is announcing the kingdom. She's announcing the kingdom. Bonhoeffer would go on to write this. The celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, and who look forward to something greater to come. Mary's words are not meek and mild. They are uncomfortable to all of us, aren't they? And let's be honest with ourselves today, that is most of us who want our lives, and maybe especially this time of year, our Christmas, to look like the glossy, perfect pictures of our social media feed. If the something greater as Bonhoeffer writes, if there's something greater that we're longing for, it's just more of the same that we've known, more stuff, more money, more attention and likes and all the rest, then Mary's song isn't a comfort today. It's a challenge. It's a challenge. If there's something greater that you're longing for, that I'm longing for, if it's just more of the same than what we've known, then this isn't a comfort. This is a challenge today. 
It's a challenge to not read and hear and sing the words and story of Jesus this Christmas without seeking the way and the works of Jesus just as passionately. Jesus became his words. And in the most incredible way, the deliverer that Mary is singing of is the one that she would eventually deliver. He would become her words. Mary's words are a comfort to those and maybe to those of you today that feel like the least. For whatever reason, you're in a moment in your life and you feel like the lowliest person. You feel unseen. You feel unheard. You feel unknown. You feel pushed down and oppressed. Maybe for all sorts of reasons in your life, Mary's words are a comfort to those who are in that place. But the reality for this room today is that they are more likely a challenge a challenge to us to not just speak and hear Jesus' words, but to become them ourselves. And to all of us today, they are an assurance that no matter how on the fringes we might feel or how much we might long for change and feel that we're stuck in a rut, that God still gets involved in the lives of messy, broken, lowly people like Mary. And so the question is today, why not yours? Why couldn't he get involved in your life? Why wouldn't he? If he can do this for her, then why not yours?